Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ricky with Marty. And this is my Christian podcast. And uh, we're back with the final segment with Lynn Reidenhauer. And we discuss, once again, questions that are burning in your minds and in ours as well. Uh, it's it's an amazing episode. Very powerful. I hope you feel the power in this episode. Um, I want to thank you for all the new listeners, uh, the LDS members that are listening and everybody else within the Christendom that is listening to because man, apparently y'all love this stuff and, and we're here to present it for you, man. Uh, outside views and views on Christianity. We're here. This is my Christian podcast. That's what we do. We want to bring Christianity together and we hope this is, uh, this is the, the way, you know, with dialogue, right, Marty? Exactly. Exactly, man. Uh, I mean, today, you know, we heard Lynn and, and it, it was, it was another great recording, I think. Yeah. So yeah, it's like once again, it's post and uh we just got done. It's amazing. Um I, I could probably listen to this guy talk all day long about everything. You know? I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah, I could too. Yeah. He, he seems to know what he knows. He knows what he knows and he knows a lot. And it and man, wow, I thought I knew a lot. <laughs> but yeah. 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 This guy, yeah. he he knows a lot. I like the way he just like, it says this and on page this, on this paragraph, you know, and he's just keep in mind, he doesn't have these books in front of him. He's just like letting it all right? out, you know? Yeah. He, he's like a walking uh, dictionary or whatever, whatever that's called. Dictionary. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing stuff, man. Ladies and gentlemen. So this is the final recording with Lynn for uh, the time being. We'll have him back on the show. Don't worry. So send in your questions and we, maybe we can ask him next time he uh, decides to drop on the show and, you know, give us his thoughts but uh yeah so here we go hope you enjoy this so much as much as we did and thank you lynn once again for being part of the show uh we're back ladies and gentlemen with lynn reidenhauer and to ask him uh the finishing questions of our our little series with him and hopefully he'll uh come back and uh do this again someday and uh, uh I, I have marty here marty I'm say here. hi Hi, Marty. Hello. <laughs> and I also have Lynn. How you doing, Lynn? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you so much. Thank you. No problem, man. Um, so, all right. So let's just go straight into what everybody's been dying to ask you um, or, you know, the questions that we received. And uh, Marty, why don't you go first and uh, let's get this thing started. Okay. So we got an email um last week and it was from Robert. He didn't give a last name or anything like that. And uh, he wants to know why, if you know why the LD, the LDS church no longer want to be called Mormons. Uh, well, it's my understanding that, um, especially when Joseph and the saints, uh, brother Joseph and the saints during their lifetime in the 19th century, especially Around here in Jackson County, Missouri, I live on the edge of independence. That was a very uh, negative, pejorative uh, term. If you were called a Mormon, um, that wasn't a, a good thing. And um, down through the decades of probably the last 50 to 100 years, it's my understanding that the church, rather than going into a, what I would call a big spill or an explanation about uh, 
uh, who and what is Mormonism and who is a Mormon and what is the Mormon Church. They just sort of went along with that term. However, it's my understanding that leadership today um, have owned that fact that that is a pejorative term and want to get away from it, uh, Marty. Uh, uh, to be precise, um, they prefer the term Latter-day Saints. Huh. Uh, that's that's rather generic. Uh, it, it has a, a positive uh, connotation involved. Uh, uh, so, and I'm very sensitive as an outsider. Um, the only time I use the term Mormon is to try to make a distinction with my gang. Um, we know Book of Mormon believers primarily as those Mormons. We don't. <laughs> uh, we don't articulate, or it's not in our um, vocabulary, uh, the phrase Latter Day Saint. So, in that in that regard, I sometimes will use the term when I'm talking to my gang. But out of respect to my brothers and sisters who are Latter-day Saints, I honor their desire and request uh, and use of the term as well. So that's my understanding of the history, uh, in, uh, being one, wanting to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question or not. No, thank you so much for answering that, Lynn. And uh, we have another question. Um, and they said, do you get pushed back from other denominations when you're, I guess, presenting the material to, to them concerning the, the Mormon, um, not excuse me, the Book of Mormon? I really don't. Um, to get to the point, no, no, I, re I really don't. Um, and here's why I think we addressed it last time, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize the point. The main reason I don't get pushback is because I don't magnify the differences. I don't get in conversations regarding what Joseph the prophet distinguished as what I would refer to the non-essentials. That is the non-essentials of the gospel. The thing I love about Joseph was, was his approach to defining what is a Latter-day Saint or you know, what makes Mormonism so different from other religions. Um, and he answered that question and had it published in the Elder's Journal. Um, when he would come here to Independence, periodically when he lived in Kirtland, he would come out here and visit the saints. And uh, I, I think I might've mentioned this, but it bears repeating. He would invariably get cornered by the Protestant preachers, uh, Presbyterians, Baptists, predominantly. And they would ask him, Marty, the same question over and over. And that question, I'm answering your question. I'm just giving a bit of context to it. That question was, well, what makes Mormonism so different from our religion, meaning Protestantism? And here's what he said. I love his answer. He told those Baptist preachers and Presbyterian preachers, 
He said, the fundamental principles of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ. That he died, was buried, he rose again on the third day, according to scriptures, and he ascended back into heaven. And here comes the key point. And all other things which pertain to our religion, meaning the Latter-day Saint religion, all other things are only appendages to it. My point is, if you want to talk about baptism for the dead or the nature of the Godhead or eternal progression or premortal existence um, and being premortal uh, beings, um, those are all, I didn't say they were non-important. Neither did Joseph. But he did say they were non-essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my point is I stay away from those things that differentiate Protestants from Mormons. Oh, there, I did it again, I'm sorry, from Latter-day Saints. <laughs> uh, I don't get into those non-essentials because they don't want real... Now, I'm being maybe too harsh on my gang, but I are one, so I'm going to pick on our gang. Uh, a lot of times, they're not looking for an answer. They're wanting to to validate their assumptions. Hmm. And uh, they ask these questions, basically, to uh, pin us down or to put us on the spot. Uh, we call them gotcha questions. So I, I don't go there. I primarily... 99% of my ministry. Now, I may go there in private settings, but out into the out in public when I'm speaking in uh, a Methodist church or Disciples of Christ church, and, and I do, uh, Pentecostal church, I stay on the commonalities of the faith. What do Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Catholics and Baptists and Latter-day Saints have in common doctrinally? Glad you asked, let me tell you. And so that, that's, that's my approach, is there, there's so much that we, uh, the, Joseph makes the distinctions, the essentials of the gospel, and he enumerates them the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The non-essentials, we're to give one another liberty to disagree. Unit, let there be unity in the essentials, which he enumerated, and let there be liberty to disagree in the non-essentials. Again, I like the way C.S. Lewis articulated it. If I mentioned this before, uh, I apologize, but I don't think I did. You haven't. But, okay, C.S. Lewis is one of my heroes, literary heroes and spiritual heroes. I love this man's writings. He could write in four or five genres. He wrote children's books. He was a theologian and a scholar. 
as a person who has a background in literature and writing, that ain't easy (laughs) to do. But he's he's my literary hero and spiritual hero. I kind of tease people. I say, look, especially if you're a Latter-day Saint, I said, look, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, that little classic book, I'm not convinced you'll end up in the celestial glory. Uh, that's attempted humor there, okay. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read the book, but, sorry. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we'll give an exception. <laughs> okay. C.S. Lewis said in the introduction to that book, Mere Christianity, and he sums it up better than anyone. He said this, it's not that we Christians disagree. It's that, says Lewis, it's that we disagree on the importance of our disagreements. And that's Joseph's point. That's my point. That's Lewis's point. Um, Christians don't disagree, but what's important to a Pentecostal, meaning speaking in tongues, you may not, I've been told this, Lynn, you're not saved if you don't have your prayer tongue, you know, Pentecostals, and I've, if, if you're Episcopalian or Lutheran, what's important to you is infant baptismal regeneration that's not that doctrine is not important to me a baptist now as a baptist what's important is the rapture the rapture is not important to a latter-day saint because as we said last time instead of uh, saints going up god's coming down um the rapture doctrine is not part of the theology of latter-day saints so whether you're Pentecostal with the uh, doctrine of speaking in tongues important to you or Lutheran and Episcopalians, infant baptismal regeneration important to you or Catholic, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation important to you in the mass liturgy um, or Latter-day Saint where sacred ceilings in the temple are important to you. I'm, I'm emphasizing in uh, Lewis's point. It's not that all of us are disagreeing. We're simply disagreeing on the importance of our disagreements. What's important to a Baptist ain't to a Lutheran. What's important to Episcopalian ain't is not to an Amish. What's important to an Amish is not to a Latter-day Saint, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't get off into those weeds. When I minister, excellent, excellent. Now, I yeah, I ahead. stay on. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I would just go to simply sum it up. My passion is that God's people come together in the spirit of love and unity, not doctrinal conformity. I may have mentioned this before. Um, many of us think we have to come together in doctrinal conformity, but the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Neither of them teach doctrinal conformity, which is um, a result of creedal agreement. Both of them teach unity of the spirit. 
which is agreement on his lordship. It's a, what I'm saying is the real, the real things that matter of the Christian faith are issues of the heart, not issues of theology, which many, many times are issues of the head. Amen to that. Uh, Okay. Uh, all right. I don't know if I answered your question. I hope I did. Well, me, oh, you did. Let me ask a question. Okay. So, uh, do you ever get any pushback from any LDS members that tell you that you uh, you have no authority or right to you know use the Book of Mormon or at, you know as part of your service or anything like that? Good point. That is an excellent question, and you know, I've been doing this for thirty plus years. And according to my recollection, and I'm almost 100%, I'm sure, you're the first person ever asked me that question. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, you're special, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, and that's an excellent question. And uh, again, let me answer it. But before I give you a yes or no answer on that, let me make a few remarks. I've noticed, hanging around Latter-day Saints, that your culture is a culture that, um, well, let me just put it this way, whether in your home or your business life or your church life uh, and one things i love thing i love about uh, the more uh, there i did again latter-day saint culture <laughs> is that all of your life comes under the umbrella of the lordship of christ you don't compartmentalize uh, as much as we protestants do um within the latter-day saint culture you uh, you have food pantries. You, you, uh, and and I have many friends out in the Salt Lake area. Been out there for the last twenty-five years, up and down the state of Utah. Um, slept in many a home, or more than a few homes in Salt Lake City, and and friends with BYU professors slept in their homes and spoken, lectured at BYU. My point is this. I'm familiar with your culture, and it's a culture of, number one, incredible kindness. Really, you're a lot kinder than we are. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, <laughs> we Protestants will fight at the drop of a hat. I'm being a little facetious, but... Uh, <laughs> Truthfully, um, we Baptists, uh, we're known for a Baptist split. We'll, we'll split over a pickle. Well, I like sweets. Well, I like di di I like I like dill. Well, that's enough. You go ahead and build a church on Main Street. We're going to stay here. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I've been through a few Baptist splits. I, I literally have. And, and our culture is just, it's... It's innate because we're based out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, uh, we're protesters. It's in our spiritual DNA. You're not. In fact, Mormon missionaries particularly 
Well, just not them, but especially the Mormon. I, I did it again. Latter-day Saint missionaries. And by the way, I love for them to come to our house and knock on our door. And uh, I'm chasing a rabbit. I, I want to finish my point, your question. Um, they're taught and they're excellent. They, they back away from controversy. When when controversy enters the the um, uh, situation, they withdraw because the spirit withdraws. I have yet to meet my first convert into the Christian faith that was argued into the kingdom. We are wooed and loved into the kingdom. The spirit is a lover. And that, that is so innate in all of your culture, is your, your culture of kindness. Um, so therefore, that's one of the reasons I've never been challenged. I, that's my assumption. But to know, to answer your question, no, I've never been challenged. Now, I and, and I honor and respect um um, I honor and respect this matter of authority because it, it proper uh, presidential succession and proper priesthood as authority is a big deal. And I understand that and I respect that among Latter-day Saints. So let me give you one of the best illustrations. I'm sorry, but, but this illustrates my point. Okay. To answer your question, okay. if I may, yeah, yeah, may no. I take the yeah, go ahead. take the take the license? Uh, uh, okay. Um, I got a phone call one day, and uh, it was from the pastor of a four-square Pentecostal church in Draper. Now, Draper, Utah, is just south of Salt Lake City. And he invited me to come to his church and be one of the speakers. He's, he was holding a conference, and the purpose of his conference was he wanted to befriend, I'll use his words, my Mormon brothers and sisters. You know, he lived among the, the Mormon culture there. And so he had a large church. And uh, he said, we want to have a conference, and we would like for you to come and be one of our speakers. I said, it would be my pleasure, sir. So I invited my friend Roy Brown, who is an elder in your, I call them first cousins, RLDS to LDS, uh, <laughs> RLDS around here. He's a first cousin to the uh, LDS in Salt Lake. So I said, Roy, go with me. The pastor of a, now Foursquare is part of the Pentecostal family, historically speaking, the church, or uh, church denomination. Uh -huh. He wants us to come, and he wants to befriend his Mormon brothers and sisters who live, who live around him. They, they live right in the middle of them, there in uh, Draper, and I said, Roy. You and I go, I think, you know, I'm a Baptist minister, you're a Latter-day Saint, uh, we'd be a good, uh, make a good pair, since this meeting is uh, uh, built upon a re reconciliatory purpose. So, Roy and I um, fly out, 
and uh, rent a car, and we'd drive up into the parking lot of the church. And the parking lot is full. I mean, it's jam-packed. I said, oh, and it's big church. But I didn't expect the entire parking lot to be full. Well, it was. So Roy and I walk in the foyer. And now I've never met the pastor. I've just talked to him on the phone. Soon as I walk through the door, church door, into the foyer, some guy's coming toward me. And I could tell this guy's upset. And he gets right up to me and he says, are you Lynn Reidenauer? I say, yes, sir. And he just wiggles his finger, like, follow me. And, I, and he turns around. I say, oh, this man's agitated. Now, I'm assuming, is this a pastor? So anyway, Roy and I follow him. It was the pastor. We follow him into his office. We didn't go into the sanctuary. He took us immediately right into his office. And Ricky and Marty, he turns around when Roy and I are in his office. Turn, he shuts the door, turns around, and his first words out of his mouth were not, Hi, I'm glad you're here. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. No. He says in this tone of voice, first words, You are going to preach against that book, aren't you? What? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm totally caught off guard. I thought this was a friendly meeting, you know. And I, I'm, I'm standing there, and I'm crying out on the inside. I'm saying, I'm crying out to the Lord. I said, Lord, please don't let me say something stupid. Uh, don't let me open my mouth. And these words come out of my mouth. Here's what I say. I say, well, pastor, I say, do you remember the Jesus People Movement back in the 70s? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, I'm an old Jesus People person, Pastor. I speak in tongues. I know he, his whole church uh, teaches speaking in tongues. I said, I'm one of you, Pastor. I speak in tongues, too. And uh, I could kind of read his stress meter. It went down from a 10 to an 8. And so I kept talking. Uh, I said, um, Pastor, I said, uh, and, and I'm just crying out to the Lord. I said, Pastor, you know, my wife and I, during the Jesus People Movement, we ran and operated uh, a halfway house for hippies and drug addicts. And we'd go out into the parks, Pastor, and invite them to come live with us. Uh, and Pastor, invariably, they'd always say, well, you know, we smoke pot, don't you? And I say, I, well, if you do, would just, and Pastor, I would tell him, I said, well, come on anyway, just do me a favor. If you have to smoke, don't smoke on our grounds because we got a good thing going here. We don't want to get busted. And that man, the pastor's listening. And I thought, well, I won't say one more because I say, Pastor, and also the, the young boy, which is probably late te teens or early 20s, he would uh, also say, well, can I bring my old lady, meaning his girlfriend? I'd say, yeah, bring her. He said, well, we know, you know, we're not married. I'd say, bring her anyway. And I could tell 
by the time I'd said, well, bring her, and by the time I'd said, well, if you have to smoke, don't smoke on our grounds, this Pentecostal preacher, this wasn't going over very good. <laughs> and I thought, man, I, I got to I gotta get to the point real quick here. I mean, he's, I'm thinking he's about ready to shut this thing down before we even get started. So I said, Pastor, my point is this, Pastor. I said, these young people, the, these hippies that were living with us, their problem, Pastor, wasn't that they were uh, doing drugs. And, Pastor, their problem wasn't that they were living in adultery. Pastor, their problem was that they had never met the living God that you and I know. And, Ricky, Marty, that did it. That broke the ice. He said, well, okay, you can have your meeting. But then he said, but my, my staff and I were staying in our offices. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so uh, about that time, someone stuck, uh, some young girl stuck the, her head in the office, opened the door, said, Brother Lynn, it's your time to speak. You're up. So I said, Pastor, come on in the sanctuary, hear what I got to say. And he said, no, no, you go ahead and have your meeting. But we're staying here in our office. So I was the last speaker before lunch. Now, I got a point I'm making. I was the last speaker before lunch. And, oh, I got to back up and insert this. Before I went to this meeting, the pastor did not know that I had been ministering up and down the state, holding building bridges conferences. And inside the sanctuary, which I wasn't aware of, the reason the pastor was so upset was on the left side, when I did walk into the sanctuary, on the left side of the church, there were about 200 Mormons. The whole left side of his church, all the church pews were filled with Latter-day Saints. Word had gotten out over the state of Utah that, hey, Brother Lynn's coming to town. So oh, wow. They, they showed up to hear me, and they're all sitting there. Most of them are sitting there with their quads in their laps. You know what a quad is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on the right side, when I did walk into the sanctuary, on the right side of the church sat his congregation. We had about we had about two hundred Latter Day Saints on the left side filling all the pews with their quads in their laps, and we had about two hundred Pentecostals, his congregation sitting on the right side. Wow. <laughs> well. Here's, here's what the Lord spoke to me, spoke to my heart. He spoke to me before I went to this meeting. He said, now I'm really going to move this time. Now, I understood that. And I actually thought, well, Lord, you've really been moving. But he emphasized, I'm really going to move this time. And I understood that. And then he said, which I didn't understand, he said, and this time, I don't want you touching anyone when you pray for them. I didn't understand that, Marty, because I'd had no problem in previously 
uh, precious LDH saints would let me minister uh, under the power of the priesthood of the believer, not the office of the priesthood, but they gave me grace and love and to do that. Well, the Lord said, this time I don't want you touching anybody when you minister to them. I didn't understand that. Well, but with that information, I walked, here's what happened. When I walked through those swinging doors in the sanctuary and I saw the church filled, Marty, Ricky, the Shekinah presence of the Lord, his glory, you could see it, everybody could see it, was visible in that sanctuary. I mean, it was lit up brighter than any light bulbs in the church. And everybody recognized it. Now, the early saints were familiar with that Shekinah glory and presence um, in their services. There was a bright light like in the grove. Joseph's own testimony of his conversion in the grove in 1820, he says, you know, I cried out for mercy. Uh, but he also says, I was filled with the Spirit. But he also says, and a bright light, brighter than the noonday sun rested upon me. You remember that? He said that. That Shekinah glory, that visible light was present in that Pentecostal sanctuary. Now, here's what happened. I'm the last speaker. I go up and I speak, and the light is still there. It's visible to the naked eye. All of us are aware. I say what I'm going to say. I dismiss everybody for lunch. And I make this announcement before I let him get up. I said, all of you who would be willing to give up your lunch hour and would like personal ministry, meet me over by the organ. And I pointed to the left, uh, right over here in the corner. And there were about three or 400 people there, 50 precious LDS brothers and sisters met me during lunch hour at the organ. Here's what happened. They all lined up in semicircles, about five rows deep, like a choir, 10 in a row. And that was a rare occasion. I've had the word of knowledge. Sometimes I could tell you personal things about you. Um, but this was different. This was... A seer's anointing is the best way to express it. Now, it's a totally a gift. I don't have it. It's not mine. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it, it's the Lord. It, it, the Lord's sovereign when he wants to manifest that gift. And that was one of those rare occasions. But when I saw people, it was like I was reading a monitor screen on a TV, the words. I just read the words. The Lord would say, point to, in my heart, point to this person. And in my mind's eye, I would read what I was seeing on the screen. And it was very personal, very uplifting, nothing, nothing accusatory or shame on you this time. But it would be like, oh, 
you're, you have a friend and her name is Norma and you're from California and you've given up on religion in general. And this really, you're disturbed about your friend Norma. You're not sure if she's your friend or foe. And it would be just spot on. And every time, and then I would just, here's why the Lord didn't want me to touch anyone. And here's my answer to your question about ministering and not having the priesthood. Let me just interject this. Beautiful thing about being a Latter-day Saint is we believe in both books. We believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Ghost, and we believe that the Book of Mormon is inspired by the same Holy Ghost. Both spirits wrote the both books. Yes, Joseph said the, of the two, the more correct one was the Book of Mormon. And the reason he said that, unlike the Bible, which he's gone through 10 or 12 translations, this went from Joseph, the Holy Ghost. There was no translators in between. So, of course, the Book of Mormon's more correct. But more correct does not mean more important. My point is, Peter, in one of his epistles, either First or Second Peter, says there is a priesthood of this holy nation. There is a priesthood of the believer, not an, it's a, he said, it's a calling to each generation. So I make the distinction as pointed out in the stick of Judah, the Bible. I operate under the priesthood of the believer, which is a calling to every person who knows Jesus, regardless of church affiliation. As compared to in the Book of Mormon and the DNC, which tells you of the office of the priesthood, which is found, these distinctions are found in DNC 84, when Joseph had the revelation. There's the office of priesthood that's conferred in the Latter day Saint Church. I don't operate under that. And then there's the calling of the priesthood, as in the book of the Bible. Well, I was operating that day under the calling of the priesthood of the believer. And I, the Lord said, I want you to honor the priesthood of the saints here. Don't lay your hands on any of them. So that's my whole point. I'm telling this whole story. I went around that mountain to get <laughs> to this point. The, the Lord said, don't touch anybody because you don't operate in the office of the priesthood, and they know it, and you honor and respect their beliefs. I said, yes, Lord. I got it. Here's what happened, though. We're all up around the altar. I would just point to someone after I'd read after the seer's anointing and tell them, I'd say, bless you, sister, and they would be overcome by the Spirit as the saints were on June in 1830. The church was founded on April the 6th, 1830, and about two months later, Joseph wanted to have his first conference in Joseph Knight's home in Coldsville, New York, and so they had, the, the saints had their a first conference in June, 
of 1830, and it says, and I'm not trying to show off, it's uh, volume one, uh, page 85 through 87. I just know your church history. No, it's 81 <laughs> through 84. Uh, uh, it says that when they would pray for the saints, they would be overcome by his presence, and they had to lay many of the saints at conference on beds or in other inconvenient places. That same anointed presence of the Holy Ghost was present in this Pentecostal church that day, and all 50 of these precious LDS sisters and brothers was overcome with the Spirit, and they were lying on their backs on the floor up front around the altar with angelic faces in a state of serenity. There was nothing sensational, none of the holy roller stereotype caricature stuff that we think of. Nobody was jumping over pews or swinging from chandeliers. (laughs) Uh, they, They were just lying there overcome. So now I've been enraptured. I've been engulfed. I've been laser focused on what was occurring. So they're all there enjoying the presence of the Lord. And I thought, well, I'll just go to lunch. So I'm stepping over and I'm walking down the aisle. I said, the Lord will do his thing. I'm going to leave him alone. And here's I'm walking down the aisle to go to lunch. And lo and behold, who's standing up against the wall at the back of the church? The pastor. Now, and he's standing there sober as a judge. He's got his arms crossed, leaning up against the wall, and I'm walking too toward this pastor, and I'm thinking, I can't I can't read his body language. I just know he's just sober looking. And I get about ten feet away and I'm thinking, is he gonna kick me out of his church? Is he gonna throw me out of his church? I get about 10 feet from him. He comes off the wall and he comes towards me and Ricky and Marty. He doesn't shake my hand. He grabs my arm and starts yanking it up and down. And he starts saying, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. My point is this. Here's a guy, the pastor of the church, about an hour and a half ago, called me into this office and said, you are going to preach against that book, aren't you? <laughs> now he's just in love with me. He's shaking my hand up and down. He's loving it. My point is this. Doctrinal argument, debate in his office with got Roy and I thrown out and he'd shut the whole thing down. But the presence of the Lord moving on a person's heart changes everything. My point is, in the office, we'd have been arguing doctrinal differences. But the Lord shows up and touches this man's heart. And so that's been my experience among 
Latter-day Saints. They're able to sense my love for them, my respect for them, how I honored them. And I have never been challenged. Well, I chased that rabbit around the woods. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, no, it's good. <laughs> well, that, well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that that's never happened to you, man. You know? Pardon me? I'm glad that's never happened to you, man. What's going to happen no, then? No, no, I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm, I'm glad that's never happened to you. You never had to face that. Oh, you're glad. You know, I have never once been challenged. Never once. Wow. Uh, in my 30-some years. Because, you know, people can really tell if you have a... Well, let me put it this way. If you have a hidden agenda, it's going to come out. Right. Uh, yeah, and I don't. I have, well, yeah, I have an agenda, but it's not hidden. My agenda is, hey, let's get along. Amen. We're all, 4th Nephi, chapter 1, um, there could not be a happier people among all the people of God's creation. You know, there were no more ites in the land. There was no contention in the land, and he enumerates, there were no more ites, there were no more adultery, etc., and the prophet Nephi ended that section, I think it's verse 17 and 18, chapter, 4th Nephi chapter 1, he ends it with this, we are all in one, the children of Christ. Doesn't get any better than that, brothers. It doesn't. <laughs> All right, mine. Well, well, as as we Baptists say, I about preach myself into revival. <laughs> <laughs> I think Marty has a, a, one more question, don't you, Marty? Yeah, it's brief. Now, now, Lynn, we we've been, you know, I've been in ministry for a long time, and as far as you know, a, a clergy member myself and all that. And I was talking to a um, Lutheran pastor of mine, that's a good friend of mine, uh, and he was asking. Why do you, since you're out doing ministry and doing the building bridges ministry thing and all that stuff, and you're having these uh, seminars, but what do you see is wrong that's making so many people leave the church? And when I say leave the church, I'm talking about in general and the whole Christian body. Oh, boy, that's an excellent, excellent question. Uh, boy, that's, that's a loaded gun there. Um, Okay, let me put it this way. Now, again, this is a gospel according to peanuts. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we re we remember that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this this is my take. This is the gospel according to Lynn. Here's what I believe happens over a period of time. It's my belief that God has to start over down through the history of church, church age since Christ walked this earth. This seems to be a true principle. It's not a good one. But the church has failed miserably in this regard, I believe. And what I'm talking about, when God gets ready to move in the earth, he always seems to pick a man or a woman, whether it's Moses, 
whether it's David to build a temple, uh, whether it's Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, or whether it's Martin Luther to start the Reformation, or John Wesley to start the holiness movement, or Joseph Smith to start the restoration movement. God, it seems, when he gets ready to move in the earth, he chooses a man or a woman to create a move of God. And that's first generation experiences the true gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist preached the gospel of the kingdom. The 12 disciples preached the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 10. As you go, preach, Jesus, when he commissioned the, sent the 12 out. As you go, preach. And here's what I want you to say. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is at hand. He said, that's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to do. My point is, the pure gospel, whether it's Joseph or whomever, is the gospel of the kingdom, which is Jesus declaring. The gospel of the kingdom is a declaration and a demonstration. Acts 1.1 gave us the model of ministry. Our Lord's model of ministry is very succinctly, precisely defined in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. O Theophilus, lover of God, that means you and me, everybody, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both, both to do and teach. Now, as generation passes on, the gospel of the kingdom is watered down or compromised. For example, the, you, typically the, the first generation, I'll just use the restoration as an example. Those who were alive between 1830, during the lifetime of Brother Joseph, when he established the church in 1830, till he was martyred in 1844, that generation and on up, you might say, into 1878, till the turn of the century, those who lived and finally died about beginning 1900s, um, begin the second generation. The first generation experienced the gospel of the kingdom. They, they saw Joseph teach, but they saw Joseph do. <laughs> hey, this is incredible. I'll give one example. Listen to this. I love Truman Madsen. He's one of my favorite LDS authors. And I'm making a point. I'm a long-winded Baptist preacher. <laughs> Don't worry about <laughs> it. Don't worry about it. I'm listening. <laughs> okay. I love Truman Madsen's book. He wrote a book called Joseph Smith, the Prophet. He's Truman Madsen's a great writer. Listen to this one. I'm quoting Brother Truman. A man acting as, were, as an undercover agent 
came to Nauvoo, tried to work his way into the good graces of the prophet, then invited him out for a walk. And on the crest of the hill, let me stop right there. I've had the blessed privilege of standing on the crest of that hill in Nauvoo. It's a big hill. <laughs> it's a huge hill. Well, on the crest of the hill, the prophet stopped. Now, this is a total stranger. The prophet stopped, listen, called him by his name. Get out of here. <laughs> and said, now, Truman Madsen didn't write, get out of here. That was my editorial <laughs> comment. <laughs> I was like, wow, really? <laughs> no, let me read that sentence. Not editorialized. Okay. <laughs> On the crest of the hill, the prophet stopped, called him by name, and said, you have a boat and men ready to kidnap me. But you will not make out to do it. And Brother Matson goes on to say in his book, it was true. The man had planned to kidnap him, but instead he went away cursing. My point is this, the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel of declaration and demonstration. People listened to Joseph's teachings, but they also got to see many of his blessings. The first miracle of the church. Yeah, page 81. Again, I'm not trying to show off. Volume 1. Joseph prayed for Joseph Knight's son, Newell Knight. Joseph asked this young, we don't know how old he was. We're speculating late teens, early 20s. It's a new church history volume. First miracle of the church. How did this restoration get started? Emphasizing. Joseph taught but he also did. He asked this young Newell Knight to start the conference off in a word of prayer. This young was, man was bashful. So your church history volume says he went out into the woods to practice. And when he was over in, out in the woods, he was overcome, couldn't speak, got tongue-tied. Well, sure enough, conference day came. Everybody was gathered around. There were about 30 present. There was, most of us was members, but it was in Newell Knight's living room. It's not a very big house. You can, the house has been reproduced and you can see what the house looked like. There was some, a few non-members there at the first conference. Joseph, the prophet says, Newell, will you lead us in prayer? Again, it happened. He was overcome with fear his tongue was tied. He collapsed on the floor. And he, this young man looked up to the prophet standing over him, said, will you cast this evil spirit out of me? And the prophet responds, if you believe I can, I will. He said, I do. And the prophet commanded, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, evil spirit, leave him. And your church history volume says Newell saw that dark spirit leave him and leave the house. That was the first miracle of the church was a demonstration of a demonic deliverance on a church member. The second miracle occurs immediately. Immediately. 
your church history says when that spirit of darkness left the room, immediately the spirit of God descends upon this young man on the floor. And ele- excuse me, I just love your church history and elevates him to the ceiling. That's how this restoration movement got started. The gospel of the kingdom had returned. I consider that one of the most remarkable creative miracles in modern day history where the restoration gospel had returned and through the prophet Joseph, a teenage lad or in his 20s, elevated, and it says in your church history that this young man came to his senses pressing against the beams of the ceiling. And then the Spirit of God led him to back down, and it says, your church says, and the non-members got baptized. <laughs> oh, I think I would too. <laughs> okay. So I said all I'd say this. Point number one, the first generation that followed Joseph when he was alive saw miracles, healings, d- demonstrations, demons cast out as the gospel was declared. The second generation and the third generation come along oftentimes whether it's in the Baptist church, this is and this is a true principle, it seems, in all denominational churches. First generation, see the real deal. A move of God. The second generation comes along and wants to preserve the leader's teachings and create a movement say, we're going to be loyal to our leaders' uh, teachings. Now, there's one problem with that. Just because you're preserving a person's teachings doesn't mean that you're experiencing his experiences. It doesn't. And so the second and third generations it devolves from a genuine move of God into a movement. Now, typically takes 70 70 or so years for the first movement to come and go. Then the second and third generation for the next 70 to 100, 140 years teach the doctrinal teachings and beliefs of their leader and preserve them and want to re and want to keep the status quo of their leaders. Now I'm not totally dismissing that as all bad. I'm just saying if I crack the walnut and eat the walnut, you can have the shell. You ain't got the meat. <laughs> You know, yeah. there's no nutrition in the shell. Well, don't get me sorry. I'm starting to preach. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's that's what happens. A move of God is created. The second and third generation want to preserve, rightly or wrongly, the teachings and beliefs and create a doctrinal um, 
preservation of the teachings of the leader. And by the fourth generation comes along, it has devolved or degenerated from a God gets picks a man, first generation, to create a move, which degenerates into a movement preserving the teachings of the leader in the second and third generation. And by the time the fourth generation comes along, it's degenerated from a man that creates a move that degenerates into a movement that wants to preserve a monument. Interesting. And, and that's the status quo and problem with denominations. We want to preserve the status quo by just defined denominations. And so God says, look, I've started grassroots movement again. All of God's moves have been a grass started from grassroots movement. That's let me let me say it this way. The greatest opposition in a new move of God is from the leaders of the former. The Catholics were against the Protestants. The Protestants were against the Pentecostals. The Pentecostals are against the Latter-day movements. God, usually the leaders of the previous movement, because they're set in their ways, the preserving a monument. So God says, I have to, pre- I have to bypass leadership. I can't go from top down. I have to go from bottom up, create a grassroots movement and bypass the previous uh, move and start all over. Every four generations, it's been my study in church history. God starts over again. Okay. But, Okay, well, that, that brings me to another question that just popped in my mind, uh, if you don't mind, right? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, so what do you see the the inevitable next movement to be? Do you... Oh, hey, you're reading my mind. What did they say? Great minds think alike. <laughs> uh, attempted humor. <laughs> uh, here's what I really had on my heart today. And uh, we'll wrap it up with this. Now, you're the leader. I mean, I'll, I'll go to midnight if you want to. But um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's wrap it up with this because um, uh, uh, I got dinner yeah, waiting yeah. and stuff like no, that. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me – in other words, let me frame it. Let me frame it in this discussion. Okay. I see the restoration in, from a larger perspective. For example, if you Google search Wikipedia, you'll discover about 11 million Latter-day Saints worldwide, i.e. Mormon. Well, I've been a part of two restoration movements since 1985. Here in Independence, I became involved in 1985 in the Joseph Smith story, the Joseph Smith restoration, i.e. Latter-day Saint movement. I also simultaneously became involved in what I refer to as the Protestant prophetic 
restoration movement that was launched back in 1982 here by one of the leaders of today's worldwide movement. I call it the Protestant prophetic restoration movement. That's really led today. You need to know the names of the leaders of this worldwide movement. For example, let me throw some statistics at you. There is a worldwide restoration movement outside of the Latter-day Saint movement that I'm a part of. And in November of 2011, Pew Research Forum did a study on global Christianity. Pew Research Forum is a very, very credible data collection institution. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Very reputable, quoted by academicians, very trustworthy. And here's what they discovered. There is a worldwide movement. It's interdenominational. And it's growing at the rate of 19 million new members a year worldwide. Wow. That's 54,000 new members a day. Wow. And this worldwide interdenominational movement, it's estimated, uh, if you check out Pew Research Forum, and there's a couple other studies that was done, Charisma Magazine no, uh, mentioned it. Um, for example, today, according to Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, Half of the population of Brazil, half of the population of Guatemala, half of the population of Kenya are members of this Christian worldwide movement. By 2025, which is five years from now, at the growth of rate, at the rate of growth, this worldwide restoration movement, By five years from now, there will be over one billion Protestant prophetic restoration members. Now, there's nothing official to join about this. Now, what you say, well, what's unique about this movement? I'll tell you what's unique. Glad you asked. Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay. I find it unique, intriguing, perhaps providential, that here about 20 minutes from me, I live on the south side, on the edge of independence. On the south side of independence, about 20 minutes from my house, is an international headquarters called International House of Prayer, founded by a young man by the name of Mike Bickle, who's one of the five leaders of this worldwide media, uh, 
uh, movement. There are five leaders who primarily lead this worldwide movement. You need to know these names. Bill Johnson is the name of one. Rand is the name of another one. Each of these men have millions of followers worldwide. Bill Johnson, Randy Clark, Rick Joyner, Mike Bickle. They're the leaders of this worldwide movement. There's nothing official to join. At the international headquarters, uh, International House of Prayer, and I was a member of the church that started this by Mike Bickle in 1982. He and I were friends. He moved here, called by the Lord to move to Kansas City in 82. I followed him three years later in 85 and attended his church called KC Fellowship for years, was on a, a, a faculty there and taught and I'm still very much involved in the prophetic movement, Protestant Restoration Movement. Now, here's my point. What does this movement believe? What do they teach 20 minutes from my house? What does Bill Johnson, one of the leaders, Randy Clark, one of the leaders, uh, uh, Rick Joyner, one of the leaders, what are their core beliefs? Here are their core beliefs. Number one, their movement is worldwide. Latter-day Saints movement is worldwide. Number two, this restoration worldwide movement, Protestant prophetic movement, recognizes and believes in the office of prophets and apostles. This movement believes in open revelation. This movement believes that God speaks today. This movement teaches around the world and practices. They embrace, or it embraces, kingdom theology, meaning they believe that the kingdom of God not only will be, but is being established on the earth. They believe, or it believes, and embraces remnant theology, not elitist theology, but it believes and teaches a remnant theology. What I mean by that? They believe that there'll be a government established on this earth that will overcome this world's present-day government, regardless if it's dictatorial, autocratic. There will be a government on this earth that will supersede all the governments in the world. Now, you, you call that, or it's Latter-day Saints call that, Zion. This movement holds up the Elijah ministry, believing in a return of Elijah's prophetic ministry before the return of the Lord. Let me end this. Brothers, <clears throat> You know whose core beliefs I just defined? Joseph Smith's. The, here's my point. This worldwide movement that I'm part of, I'm heavily involved in both restoration movements. I know these men. I've worshipped with them. I've been in their meetings together. 
They believed the same core beliefs as Joseph Smith. Now, here's what keeps me up at night, and here's my passion and calling. What is Believers Building Bridges all about? What's our uniqueness? Glad you asked. You're welcome. Here it is. (laughs) Here it is. I believe these two groups need to meet and get acquainted. They're not not aware. I'm talking about the restoration in its larger picture. The Latter-day Saints are not aware of any of this that we're discussing. And my gang, I mean, I go to church and I see signs and wonders. I see what Joseph just did. Paul Cain, a prophet, in this movement, he's on the other side now. I was in the conference the evening he did that. We had about 1,200 people sitting there. My lovely wife and I were there, member of our church, KC Fellowship. He was one. He's one of the prophets. I saw this with my own eyes. He would call people out. Stand up, ma'am. Stand up. And he called out of 1,000 people. He called up, called about eight people out of the crowd. Stand up. I witnessed this. He would say, ma'am, your name is, and he would tell her her name. And he would say, and you have traveled to this conference from Louisville, Kentucky. And he did it to the next person and the next person and the next person and the next person. I never, ever saw him to be wrong. That's what, so I sit in both meetings. I sit and I think, well, well, Joseph did that. <laughs> and and I, I, I'll sit among the Latter-day Saints meetings that we're having. And God's restored a lot of the spiritual manifestations of the early church. And I just marvel, I say, these two groups have to meet one another. I'm finished with this. Our passion is to introduce these two groups to one another. These these millions around the world these new 54,000 people a day, 19 million new a year who believe all the core beliefs of Joseph Smith, they're one revelation short of embracing the stick of Joseph's core teaching. My gang is one revelation short. Hey, they're doing pretty good. I just enumerated a bunch of core beliefs they believe but the one revelation and if God showed this Baptist preacher he can show them you say what is the one revelation they don't have yet it's the revelation I call that distinction of Judah's scepter and Joseph's birthright when that patriarch laid his hands on his 12 sons Joseph got a blessing Judah got a blessing all the other sons got a blessing Judah's blessing was you're going to get the scepter 
there's never going to be a nation on this earth that the sun will go down that the royal scepter of Judah is not held up. That's your blessing. Joseph, what's your blessing? Well, you're going to inherit a land choice above all others, set aside for the end time. Joseph got the promised land. Judah got the scepter. We, my gang, all of us, Protestants, Pentecostals, all these millions of prophetic restoration, we have a revelation of Judah's scepter. We understood, we have an understanding that the Messiah came down through the tribe of Judah. And the blessings of salvation come through the tribe of Judah. We understand the blessings of salvation. We don't understand the blessings of the promised land. That America is set aside. And that you, if you have a revelation that America is the promised land, you might be a son of Joseph. And that's what got Joseph the prophet killed. In Carthage, he told these Protestant preachers, my great, 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 great granddaddy is the old patriarch Joseph. I'm an Israelite. It's in my blood. I've got the blood of the old patriarch in the Old Testament. I've got his blood running through my veins. They said, oh, we can't take that. We better shoot this guy. And they killed him. Well, that's what excites me, that we have all of these revelations that God speaks today. The kingdom is on the earth, and it's going to expand to all the nations of the world. God still speaks today. The canon's not closed. It's open. Millions of the prophetic restoration Protestants believe those truths. My passion is, hey, there's one other revelation. And that is, you could be a son of Ephraim. You could be an Israelite living in the promised land. Hallelujah. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing, man. All right, thank you, uh, yeah. thank you so much for uh, being on the show, Lynn. I mean, that what a great way oh, to finish. You're quite welcome. What a great finish. Great, that was so great, man. Uh, hey, thank you, guys, and uh, Marty. I'll be calling you, okay, uh, for your expertise about setting up a podcast. Okay, that sounds good. Let oh, that know. sounds good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Lo- uh, love you, pe- love you, love guys. you too, man. Love you too, man. Man, all right. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much once good again, night. man. Have a good night, man. Uh-huh. Amazing. Wow. Man, that's powerful. That's incredible, yeah, huh? Dude, <laughs> dude amazing yeah. stuff. I-, I was sitting there listening to it like, wow. Yeah, I, so was I. I was just sitting here, man, listening. I was like, wow. Yeah. Anyways, all right. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was Lynn Radenhauer. And we want to thank him personally, as we did before, again, right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. I got it all choked up. Thank you for being on the show, man. Uh, I really hope uh, you listen to this and we'll uh, get you back on the show again. Uh, I know we got some plans that you uh, 
we want you to be a part of. So, but those are still cooking in the pot. So uh, we'll see how that turns out. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of My Christian Podcast with your host Ricky and. That's Marty. right. And if you want to get a hold of us, if you have any questions or anything like that, go to mychristianpodcast.com. The show, uh, it's going to be in the, in the show notes. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Lynn, there's going to be a way in the show notes as well, ladies and gentlemen. Um, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, we got some other stuff coming up. So, yeah, looking forward to all that. Right, Marty? That's right. So keep tuned in. All right. We'll see you all next time.